Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast, hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists. Today on The Microscopists, I'm joined by Jan Ellenberg, Head of Cell Biology and Biophysics Unit at EMBL. And in a revealing and really engaging chat, we discuss all sorts, including unexpected budgets. And then I said, you know, how about a confocal microscope? And I thought, okay, this is gonna never gonna happen. <laughs> and and he said, how much is that? And and we had just talked about it. And I said, that's four hundred thousand. And he said, could you order this this week? <laughs> the role of EMBL in kickstarting scientists' careers. And that means it's for young people. It's for people to start their careers. It's for people to build their first labs. For people to develop something new. And so you are surrounded by young, international, motivated people. His special Japanese cooking knife. So that's that's what my wife always says. I just have to give you a sharp Japanese knife, and immediately you are smiling when you get home, even if the day has been really stressful. And the mutual support between service and research staff at EMBL. Uh, so there's no no distinction between these two career options and it, it really depends on what people are good at and also what they what they want to do. All in this episode of the Microscopists. Hi, I'm Peter O'Toole from the University of York, and today on the Microscopist, I'm joined by Jan Ellenberg from EMBL over in Heidelberg. Jan, how are you today? I'm fine. How are you, Peter? It's great um, to see you. Uh, thank you for uh, agreeing to talk today, and there's quite a lot to talk about, actually. But uh, I, I, where's the best place to start? Probably, you're very famous for your microscopy and your impacts uh, to societal microscopy through neurobioimaging. But would you class yourself in the early days as a microscopist? Well, I guess it depends on what you mean by early days. I mean, my, my uh, first training in research was not microscopy. I was trained as a, as a biochemist and molecular biologist in plant biology, actually. And so I only got into microscopy a bit by accident at the very end of my, what in Germany at the time was called the diploma degree. So that's your first independent research project. So the senior master's project. And uh, at the very end of that, the gene I had cloned and characterized as a protein had to be localized in the plant tissue where it's expressed. And for that, I needed to use something called dark field microscopy. And so before I had only looked at gels and spans and uh, extracted things, and then that was the one bit where I looked, you know, where was this bloody thing in the organism that I had cloned it from? And I think that just made me fall in love with uh, actually seeing, you know, the context of, of where things are. And uh, so then I decided for my PhD that I wanted to do something with microscopy. Yeah, so, but my, my basic training wasn't at all in, in microscopy or physics. So where, where was that first degree? Was that in Hamburg? No, I studied in Hamburg, uh, but then the first degree came from Berlin. So I moved to a private research institute in Berlin to do this first independent research because the lab conditions were just spectacular. And uh, so that came from Berlin. But then, then actually the first microscopy was in a collaboration of that Berlin Institute with the Max Planck in Cologne. So at the time, the famous plant people were all at the Max Planck for breeding research in Cologne. And there was one guy who had actually mastered the technique of looking 
at in situ RNA hybridizations by microscopy, which was a very difficult thing at the time. Yeah? So, so you had to work in complete darkness with silver emulsions to detect the tiny bit of radioactive RNA that you had labeled in the plant tissue and, and see where it was. So what was your first microscope that you used? Uh, well, that microscope was uh, what the size axiovert, uh, just a plain film dark field uh, microscope. So I would say, yeah, that probably qualifies as the first real microscope that, that I used. Um, but then the first instrument I used really heavily was, was the one during my PhD, and that was a confocal. It happened to be a Zeiss again. It was a Zeiss 410 confocal series that had just come out and uh, was another of these accidents. I mean, that's actually a fun story to tell. I mean, I, I, uh, I started my PhD again doing biochemistry because um, that's what I knew I was trained in. And, and, and so I started, I mean, you know, I did my PhD at the, at the NIH with, with Jennifer Lippincott-Schwartz and she was working on membrane traffic. And so the idea was to do subcellular fractionations and, and isolate organelles. So it was all again biochemistry grinding up cells, you know, looking at bands on gels, radioactive labeling, all of that. And, uh, but the year I started, GFP was cloned and published. And then uh, Jennifer said, oh, let's, you know, let's try to stick this on membrane proteins. We might be able to see membrane proteins moving like the cytoskeleton people have been able to do with purified fluorescently labeled protein and re-injecting that into cells. And, and so I was good at molecular biology. So I did some constructs and, and, and then we started to do some imaging. And we again had a very simple epifluorescence size axiovert, and it was completely unusable for live imaging, of course. Yeah. And, uh, and then there was one person on campus who ran the NIH imaging facility, Carolyn Smith, and, and she said, you know, you should use a confocal microscope. And then everybody at the time believed, you know, you cannot use confocals for live imaging because they use lasers and the cell would die and then it would immediately have disaster. But, you know, we said, okay, you know, then there was another person on campus who was doing a lot of live imaging for, um, dyes to labor membranes, like, you know, dye-I and dye-OC6 and yep. things like that. And there was Mark Chirazaki, and he said the same, you, you should use a confocal, this is actually good for live imaging. So I said, all right, you know, let's let's give that a shot. And it, it worked much better than the axiomat that, that we had in, in, in Jennifer's lab. But of course, confocals at the time were really expensive. There was one in the NIH imaging facility, and that was it. And there was, you could only get to it very rarely, and, and it was really difficult. To, to get on it, but it was NIH under the Clinton administration. And so they, they got these guaranteed budget increases every year. And so that meant at the end of the financial year in the fall, the chief of the branch would go through the labs and ask people what they wanted uh, from the budget. And I had just been there for three months as a, as a student. And, uh, but at NIH, there were new students. So I was treated as a postdoc because they didn't actually have a PhD program. And so the head of our branch came by and said, you know, you need anything expensive. We have to spend the budget this year. And, and, and I said, and, you know, the most expensive thing I could think of at that time of my career was, you know, I was doing these subcellular fractionations. And I said, you know, the ultra centrifuge needs a new swing out circuit rotor. And, uh, and, you know, maybe we could buy that. And then he said, how much is it? And I said, yeah, probably 20,000, you know, something like that. It was a fancy ultra centrifuge. And he said, you know, we can buy that any week. Do you have anything? expensive that you need and uh, and then i said we had just been testing this confocal for the first time and then and i said you know how about a confocal microscope yeah, i thought okay this is gonna never gonna happen <laughs> and and he said how much is that and and we had just talked about it and i said that's four hundred thousand. 
And he said, could you order this this week? <laughs> and I said, all right, you know, that's, that's okay, we'll do that. And so that's how you know, Jennifer's lab got the first confocal because we just got it from that bit of budget that was left at the NIH at the end of the financial year. Yeah. That's quite an extraordinary story. <laughs> so, so it was really, you know, and then I ended up doing the whole PhD on that microscope, yeah, which, which uh, got delivered three months later. So the end of the financial year is September in the US. And then that's when they always get into these budget government shutdown discussions. And the system was delivered three months later, just before Christmas. And it was one of the only every five year snowstorms in Washington, DC. So the, the system sat outside the building in the snow, covered in snow on the delivery crates for four weeks before NIH opened again, because it was shut down because of snowfall, but it survived. It was, uh, everything was fine. Yeah. So I, I became kind of attached to that microscope. Yeah. And, and arguably had one of the first cryo stages then for it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, for the first four weeks of its existence. Yeah, yeah. It was fortunately it was very wrapped in plastic, so it wasn't completely soaked when we finally could unwrap it and set it up. Yeah. Oh, so I think actually the first the first confocal, the first no, not, not the first confocal. That, that was back in the Biorad days. My first size confocal that I used was actually yours. At EMBL yeah. on one of the trips, uh, and yeah, that that lives. Uh, I remember doing FRAP experiments. Yes. Yeah, yeah, uh, no, that one was set up to do that. Yeah, so the the one I then set up here was the next generation, was the five ten series. Yeah. yeah, and then I sort of configured it for live imaging and FRAP together with size. It was a bit of a custom model. Yeah, yeah, yeah that that and uh, I went off and played with a. Uh, well, Rhino Peppercocks, Timo, Timo Zimmerman and their Leica SP2, which are also doing FRAP. So it was really interesting to compare. And actually, I really loved both of the confocals. They were really quite wonderful. So you went, obviously, you did Berlin and then over to the NIH, yes. uh, over to the US. How did you find that, that move, that change? Um, well, it was challenging. I guess, you know, it's always a bit challenging to change country and culture. I think that always takes some time. And uh, I, you know, like many scientists, I also was, was a bit of an introverted person. But the, I think the big challenge was that Jennifer had said, you know, just come over, you know, this is great, you know, you can work in my lab. And I told her I was a student and she just didn't care that NIH didn't have a PhD program and, and that there was actually, there was no way to do a PhD at NIH. They did not even have a collaboration with the University of Maryland or anything, which they have now. But at the time there were just no PhD students, you know, you had more than 10,000 people on campus doing biomedical research, but not a single PhD student. So I got there and then I realized actually I can't do my PhD at NIH. So I had to convince people back in Berlin where I had done my previous degree to, to supervise this from abroad. And, uh, but, and that was fine. That was just a bit of organizational uh, challenge. But then at NIH, there were no students. There was no training. There was also a very, you know, American postdoc professional research culture that you didn't even touch the pipette man in a collaboration before it was negotiated on which part of the paper your name would appear. And, uh, and so it was a very different culture from what I was used to uh, as, a, as a junior undergrad student in, in, in German labs. Yeah. And so just getting into this, okay, you know, forget about your PhD. I'm a postdoc now and I have to function like one. Uh, that took a bit of time to, to get into yeah to just say okay you know that's how it is it's still a great lab it's a great project so I'm, I'm just going to have to teach myself how to do these things and and I think that was a bit of a shock because I wasn't expecting it but um, 
it turned out to work really well. Yeah, because uh, then you just learn to do everything yourself. And so nice. I think that that was a really good experience. And I think also the experience of the very different cultures between at the time, especially between NIH which was extremely, extremely well funded. And I was for German standards at a really well funded institute, but it was still an environment where you did everything yourself. You did all your reagents yourself. You know, you cast your own gels. You would do your own preparations. You would do your own PCR mix because you wanted to make sure it's actually right and then it has all the right concentrations. And at NH, you just bought whatever you could buy. You bought because there was so much money that you would not waste time on anything, doing anything yourself that that could be commercialized. Yeah. So it was also a very different approach to getting stuff done and, and not worrying about how to do it, but rather about getting a result as quickly as, as possible. Yeah, so I think I learned a huge amount and, and much more than, than I expected to. But the, I'm, the adaptation I'm time, yeah. yeah. So I, I'm going to ask now, I, uh, Jennifer was one of the first guests actually on, on, on the podcast series. Right. What was she like? She, she talked about how wonderful research is, but what is she like as a supervisor, as a boss? She's great. I mean, she really is. I mean, she's been on the series and, and I think people can basically imagine her looking uh, 25 years younger, but otherwise being exactly the same person. I mean, she, she, she is amazing and also that she doesn't change. I mean, her, in her boundless enthusiasm for, for science and her just inexhaustible creativity. And, and so I think she's incredibly inspiring, incredibly motivating to, to people in her lab. Um, it is if you're a junior and I was, you know, just starting my PhD, the onslaught of creativity you get from her is also something you have to learn to handle because she will generate ideas for 10 PhD projects every day. And they will be different every day. Yeah, the things they, that she's suggesting to you. And of course, you know, each of these projects could last four years. So at some point you have to decide what to do and stick with it for some time. And, and so also this process of, of you know, enjoying that, that there's always new ideas and always new things to think about. And that nevertheless, you know, you've got to work on something to finish anything and, uh, and see what is working and also if it's hard to, to pursue it. So I think that also for me was, was just a really good experience, but she's, she's great. I mean, really always supportive, always positive, always convinced that it will work, that you will find something interesting. And uh, I, I really, I, I couldn't have wished for anyone better, I think. I won't tell Jennifer that you said that she looks 25 years older than she did 25 years ago. <laughs> so. No, I mean, she's, she, yeah, character hasn't changed. Of course, she looks a bit older now, but, but uh, you know, at that time, uh, in terms of how she is and how excited she is about science and how much she, you know, inspires people to engage in research and, and, and pursue science, I think that was already like that and it's still like that. And it's, it's I think, a quality where she's really exceptional. How many years were you? How many years were you out in the U.S. for? I was there four and a half years. Yeah, so I I spent four years completing the PhD, and then I stayed six months on a bridging postdoc before I started at EMBL. Yeah, so it was was just to finish the project and then start the lab here in in Heidelberg. And, and which country is better to work in, Germany or the U.S.? Uh, well, I mean, I'm kind of not working in Germany at the moment at EMBL. I mean, the the it's it's a bubble inside Germany. It's it's a very it's a different culture. It really is not a German institution also in, in, in the way it runs. So I would say Enver is again a different thing. Um, between Germany and the US, I would say 
they, they both have strengths and weaknesses. So I, I think it really it really depends a little bit on what kind of project you're working on and maybe also in what phase of your career uh, you're working in the system. So I, I think for early stage researchers, in my experience in the US was amazing. I mean, the, the environment you had, the productivity you had, the ability to get stuff done quickly was incredible. But there was also a very high pressure to produce results and, and to finish things. And so for a junior stage research, that's fine. You anyway don't have such big long projects and, uh, and having to apply for money all the time and getting that in, uh, changing projects is, is what you do anyway. But I think for longer term, more sustained projects, there, there may be some weaknesses in the US system that that's harder to do. You know, that if you have to work on something that takes five, 10 years before it really comes to fruition, I think that's more difficult to support in the US system. It's not impossible, but it's 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 more difficult to support. And I think that is easier in the German system because then to senior people, they make these very long-term commitments and, and they also have very long-term intramural funding. So I think there's maybe a, a bit of a question when in your career are you in which system and also what type of work are you engaged in uh, where the support is maybe more easy or harder in one or the other system to get. So did you go over to the US by yourself? I did with my uh, uh, partner at the time. So, so we, we were two, two scientists. And uh, that was part of the reason we ended up at NIH, because it's so big and there are opportunities for very different scientists. And, and uh, my partner at the time, she was a structural biologist, so rather different area of research. And it was easy for both of us to have jobs there but actually we scanned kind of the whole east coast so we, we interviewed in lots of places before we settled on on nih yeah only the east coast only the east coast yeah yeah so that uh, yeah for some reason i guess we 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 were students we had to self-pay and organize all of these things we both didn't come from rich families so we could essentially afford one trip of interviews and then there were more connections we had to labs on the east coast so we, we just did it on that side of, of the us yeah so you, you, you touched, you already touched on the EMBL is, is not part of Germany. It's very different. Uh, so actually, for, for those that are not aware of EMBL, European Molecular Biology Labs, would you just briefly describe what EMBL is and the concept of it? Sure, sure. I, I won't do the whole, you know, embryo introduction, but, but just in a nutshell. I mean, so EMBL is, is the intergovernmental European organization for molecular biology. It's now over 45 years old, um, and so it's owned and run and funded by, by now 27 member states. So it's really an intergovernmental research unit, and uh, most similar that many people know from physics is CERN. So it's created by all those countries to do frontline research in, in molecular biology, but also to do services and technology development in molecular biology. So it's not just doing research, it's also providing services for the research community in all those countries. And so that means its raison d'etre is really centered around research, centered around technology development and services for research. And so the whole organization is set up just for that and has its own rules to operate just for that purpose, because it's like NATO or like the United Nations. It's an entity that governs itself. And so that means it's very international. The staff is extremely international, but also all the rules and procedures in the organization are there to support the research mission. And so that makes it work in a very different way 
than, than traditional organizations that are often part of universities or part of you know health ministries or, or organizations that have other additional missions that that make running them a bit more complicated yeah and i think the other thing that is unique about emerald is its turnover system so people don't stay here with some exceptions and i'm one of them so i'm not very representative but we have for 90 percent of our staff we have a maximum duration of staying here of nine years and so for students it's four for postdocs it's five and for faculty it's nine and then people go and that means it's for young people it's for people to start their careers for people to build their first labs, for people to develop something new. And so you are surrounded by young, international, motivated people that are only here for some time to do something special and then move on in their career and then go to a national system. And so that makes it also a very different environment because all the support we give to the research is given to the young people, it's given to the juniors, to the young groups, to the starting groups, they get all the technology, they get all the investment, they get the new students and new postdocs and all of that. So it's it's a place made for young new talent. And that again is often different in more traditional university-based systems where people stay longer and then people tend to build hierarchies and, and uh, big labs and things like that. So, so here, these these kinds of things don't don't really happen yeah so i think that's it's an amazing environment and also in terms of the interdisciplinarity and the collaborative nature of it i've never seen anything like it it's uh, because there's no competition for resources because it's very bottom up and each group leader is completely in charge of what they do research on they are extremely free and everyone has the same resources and everything is shared the incentive to collaboration and doing things across discipline is extremely strong and uh, it's just natural everyone collaborates and so for me that just turned out to be a good fit I like to do interdisciplinary stuff and uh, not do everything myself yeah so it's it's an amazing environment so I can only recommend it for everyone listening to to consider Amber for That's part it. of their career it sounds idyllic it sounds like every research community should be like that but obviously it can't because you need you need homes ultimately sure. but it is a great catapult resource and you're right people get there they establish their name they go off and then take that experience and the network as well to other places so it filters through which which gives much broader benefits in that case and you mentioned that you know they go with they build them bigger groups i would argue that you're one of the exceptions at the mbl uh, yeah, so my, my first is... visit was 2001, I think it was. So you were only there a couple of years yeah. and already recognized this really big, exciting scientist at EMBL. So I remember listening to you, talking to you, using the microscope, and you were already seen as, as, as the future. But your group there is also really big. So actually, you've done what very few people have done and actually established quite a large group at EMBL. And how many, how many people in your lab at the moment? Yeah, so we are actually shrinking at the moment because uh, one reason why we grew quite a bit is that we, we had um, two very large European community supported technology development projects to establish high throughput methods uh, of microscopy to, to apply microscopy to omics scale science and, and that these were sort of self contained projects, but they required so much technology development. Uh, that essentially I had to start a second group to be able to do that. So, so driven by those projects for 10 years, I had a de facto second group that I was supervising, but it was still all run under, under my name and, and under my group. And that's, that made the group look much bigger 
than normal Envoy groups, but those projects are completed. And uh, so we're actually shrinking at the moment. Uh, so yeah, so we are in in the lab. Really, we are we are now around fifteen people, which still for that's still a lot for one five. So that's that's still for EMBL uh, a big group, but it isn't. We we had a time when we were more than twenty, and that really is very unusual for EMBL, and it, and it was driven by by these big EU projects. Yeah, that 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 we run, and and they were successful, but now they are completed, and and uh, also I've been rather engaged, as you mentioned earlier, in in building infrastructure projects and so the commitment I made to your bioimaging and now more recently the Ember Imaging Center that just also precluded me from running such big projects on the site. Yeah. And what would you say your management style is? Well I guess you should ask people I manage. I, I, I would say um, you know a combination of, of lead by example and and uh, give people as much responsibility as they can take so so I really uh, I rather avoid micromanagement that's really hands off i think it's it's about making clear to people what you expect of them and and trying to make them responsible for what they do and also build them into the project design and into what the job is so that they they take it as their role and as as their responsibility whether it's a management project or, or a research project i think people are only really good and creative if they own something and and if they really feel this is my thing you know i want to make this succeed so that's what i try to do for everyone that that i supervise that we design what they do and the role uh, in my group in a way that they are really part of that and and then you know even for junior people i try to I always tell them you know you can come to me for advice anytime and i'm happy to design also the details with you but if you can do it by yourself you do it absolutely you know that's your job here is to become independent and the earlier you learn how to do that the better and so i, I really try to give them a lot of responsibility not too much so that if they are too junior that they don't crumble on that and then take it too serious or maybe feel left alone but you know constantly balancing that yeah that that really people should run as soon as they can and and take things to their own heart and, and and go with it because that's here at Ember again we're here to train people for a short time and then they should move on and become independent and so it's not useful to micromanage them and then they leave this environment and they can't function on their own yeah so the, the they must become independent and some people take more guidance to be able to do that and others are essentially ready when they come in and you just have to agree on what they should do and they they go for it yeah so I would say you know as hands-off as as can be but it's it's very individual people are different and uh, you can't do the same with everyone yeah so this you have to talk to everyone and learn how people work and where they need support and where they don't need support and that's a new discovery with every person you work with yeah, so, so obviously that brings in different challenges different excitement different challenges uh, throughout your career what period has been the most challenging for you and why yeah i would say i mean there's been a number of them i would say we talked a little bit about the culture shock at nih when i started my phd but i would say that that certainly wasn't the most difficult it was was unexpected and and an and adaptation but after half a year it was fine i think when i started this serious political work in in imaging to to create something that you know not just scientists need to support but but also politicians and governments need to support um, and where potentially a lot of money is involved because of that. 
um, that was something that took me quite some time to adapt to because because as a scientist you are really trained to make rational arguments you are trained to convince people by logic and you know the more senior you get in research you are really good at that you can make your case you know you can build the logic you can maybe really make it impeccable and unattackable and if you do that then in science that works people will say yes you know you're right you know let's do it like that that's not how it works in politics at all. I mean, you can make the best possible rational case and people will still not at all be interested or say, you know, I don't care whether you have a good case or not. That's not why I'm going to support you. And, uh, and so you have to understand how this system works. You know, what are the reasons for people to engage in something? And uh, how do you work with them? And how do you convince them that this is nevertheless a good cause and that this is something that they should be supporting and that they will also benefit from, even if the benefit is a different one than the main one that you maybe see as, as a researcher. And so I think that I had not expected that to be so fundamentally different yeah, to, to argue and, and that you can't get anywhere with logical, rational arguments with some of the people you need to work with. It's not because they are stupid or evil, they are not, but they have, they have different priorities and they function in a different system and you need to understand that and also need to understand their agendas yeah and so i think that took me much longer than i had thought and that was sometimes very difficult because some of these negotiations can be really tough and people can get very personal in their negotiation tactics and that's again something in science that happens relatively rarely that people attack you personally because that's just part of how you negotiate but in politics that's relatively common and uh, so you have to get used to that. Yeah, that, that that's just part of the game. And that took me some time. I'm, I'm, I'm not someone who likes to fight in public. And uh, that's just part of what you have to do. So how frustrating was the communication? And what, what tactics have you developed to, to make the communication to politicians better? Uh, how, how do you convince them? You're still, you've still got to get them on side. So how do you do it? How frustrating was it? And then how do you convince a politician of what is rationally correct, but they're not seeing it? Yeah, so it's two questions. So I think it was very frustrating. I mean, it took it took quite some time. I mean, we, we took 10 years to really create Eurobioimaging. And building the science case and the scientific community around it, I think, was also a lot of work, but actually was very enjoyable. I mean, the it's a great community. It's, it's a fantastically supportive community. And everybody wanted to do this. Everybody wanted to collaborate. Everybody wanted to share resources to create better infrastructures and to move the technology ahead for the community. So there you, you know, you just had to organize it, which was difficult because the community is so big. But the goals were easy to agree on and, and, and for, for everyone to support. So that, that uh, I think, was, was very enjoyable. The, the political case was very frustrating because that took most of that 10 years. So I would say the science case took maybe three of these 10 years. And I would say seven of the years we spent on getting the political case done and dusted and then also created as a long-term new legal entity under European law. Yeah? And, and, and I would say that's been the most difficult publication of my life to have the statutes of the Eurobioimaging Eric published in the official journal of the European Union as a legal text. Yeah, I mean, that, when that came out, I almost cried, which I normally don't do when we publish something. But this is, uh, was 10 years of work and, and it, it made it. But that was really um, hard. And I would say the, the secret is to understand what people really want. And in politics, that's often not communicated on the surface. So, so people will do all kinds of 
negotiation tactics and smoke screens behind smoke screens and smoke screens and, and build up threats and build up you know a, a case to negotiate but then what they actually want only comes after you've been through all that and and after you've had your fights and after you have established mutual trust and after you they have learned that they need to respect you because you will not give in easily and then you can finally talk to them and say what do you actually want yeah and and then often something completely unexpected comes out yeah that the way you think Oh my God! If I had known that from the beginning, we would have saved two years of time. And uh, and it's just that people don't tell you. You know, they first go through these rituals that they have in in terms of you know establishing trust, establishing respect, getting something for their pet projects out of it, even if it's completely unrelated. And then once you've done all of that, then you you know you sit down after dinner somewhere over a beer and you ask them okay now we've gone through all of this you know and and we we now we know each other we know life can be tough but in the end we are all trying to do a good job you know what do you actually need to sign this and and then uh, often very unexpected things come out that that sometimes are really hard to fulfill but sometimes are also really easy to fulfill and, and people just didn't tell you that that was what they wanted yeah so i think in the end, it's very simple. It's about establishing respect and trust with the people you negotiate with. Because almost never are they badly intended. Sometimes they are. Yeah, but but I would say it's even in politics, that's the exception. But uh, often their agenda and their mission is just fundamentally different and it's not transparent. So you just don't know that. And, and getting to that core and uh, understanding that is, is what takes time because they will not easily volunteer that information. It's, it's too confidential and too political sometimes. Yeah. And so that, that I think is, was the most challenging to, to learn how to win the trust of people that actually don't trust you and, and that think also you're threatening them. Yeah. And, and then uh, get around that and, and uh, nevertheless work together. But these are politicians, I presume, at this point that we're talking about. And how how personal were their attacks? Well, I mean, people called my boss, said a brilliant, said you know, you should fire this person. And these were <laughs> so I mean, there, you know, there were things like that, you know, there were uh, but, but why? Why what what, what is it that's so they, offensive that caused, they caused like the project? The project was in competition with other projects, and, and other projects were the ones that they wanted to succeed for political reasons, for purely political reasons. And there's always a selection between different infrastructure projects. And so if you come with a strong project, which it was from the beginning, but it's in competition with something else that is weaker and that you're not intending to compete with, but just by the nature of how European infrastructure is built, not all of the projects can go through. So the good ones will go through and the ones that have a strong political case. And so people will be sometimes just because they have invested in another project that they are more interested in. They will try to stop yours and they will try to at all costs because relatively large sums of national investments can be involved to support that and so they they will go to i i had you know really um things where you think okay that's not okay you know you can't just call up my boss and you know do personal threats and things like that you know that's that's not at least not how i play the game normally in, in, in research i mean it's competitive right but you compete about who has the best data and, and and who has the best argument and the best logic you're not trying to um with personal threats to to hold people back from doing something yeah I, i'm shocked i have no appreciation of that side and how, how do you cope 
with the stress of all that because that must be hugely stressful and, and just I don't know upsetting actually it is upsetting. I mean, you have to get used to it. I mean, this is also, you know, I worked with a team of people here at Ember on this project, Geobioimaging, and it was an amazing team. And really, the, 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 a lot of the credit of pushing this through goes to them, not to me. Um, and I also had the backing of my organization. You know, this was something that Ember wanted to do. And so it was clear that I was working in line with Ember's mission and that I was covered. You know, this was part of my professional duty. It wasn't a, pro a personal thing at all. It was just something I wanted to do right because Emble had asked me to do it and and it's uh, you know when I do something professionally I try to make it succeed so it wasn't my personal uh, pleasure to engage in this but but it became because it's a big project it became threatening to some people and so this um, I had to develop this what I always told the Eurobioimaging team you know you have to have Teflon when you go into these negotiations you never take anything that people say in negotiations personally you know, because then you kill yourself. If you ever take this personal, it gets so bad sometimes and so ugly that, that you really you really kill yourself, you know. And, and so you just have to be professional and have to say, you know, this is politics, it's diplomacy, it's part of the game. People don't mean to insult you. They don't mean to uh, hurt you personally. It's simply part of the professional way of doing this. And, and just, you know, once you're out of the negotiation, you've got to be able to forget this and go home. And not worry about it. Yeah. So, uh, but no, the, I would say the tough faces of your biometric, I, I certainly uh, did not open emails uh, when I had gone home because I just knew there was going to be something really upsetting coming up and I, I just wanted to be free of it until next morning. Yeah. So, so moving off that into something a bit cheerier, when you do go home, what do you do to relax? So, I tend to. Many days when I get home and I'm not traveling, which now for one and a half years has been the default situation for, for most of us, I guess. Um, I tend to uh, relax making dinner. So I, I like cooking and uh, I like doing stuff with my hands and, and which I sadly don't get to do in the lab anymore because it's, it's just project management and planning and longer execution. Um, so to do something where you feel useful immediately, um, I, I really love to cook at home. So that's that's what my wife always says. I just have to give you a sharp Japanese knife and immediately you are smiling when you get home, even if the day has been really stressful and you're completely exhausted. So um, because it's this kind of mindless activity, yeah, you just you know what to do and you do something uh, physical and you see the result pretty quickly. And as, as my mentor, Mark Terazaki, always said, who also loves to cook, um, the cooking is a lot more fun than lab work because when you cook something you can almost always eat it it's relatively rare that you mess it up so badly that you can really not eat it but in lab work you do a tiny mistake and the experiment is completely useless right away yeah? and so the the he said you know cooking is the relaxation for an experimental scientist because you can i make think it. when you're cooking if it goes wrong generally you know quite quickly instead of a week later I'm a bit disconcerted that as soon as you get home, your wife gives you a Japanese knife. You know, if you've had a bad day, I'm not sure I'd be wanting to be handed a knife. Yeah, yeah. no. So that's on normal days. I, I, I go to the kitchen on days where I'm really stressed out. Then, then I, I go and do some exercise. So, so I, I've taken up doing a Pilates exercise, which is a yoga like thing that you can just do with your body and, and, and a rubber mat. And, uh, and I have this routine I do for half an hour. And that, that also, if my head is really needs to be freed up, then, then that's what I do 
cooking is not enough distraction, then then that's the first thing. And then after that, I'm a social person again. Yeah, because some days you're just so overloaded and then you're in this high efficiency problem solving mode. And if you get into that mode and you go home and you treat the people around you like that, then you're really socially incompatible. So it's, it's good to somehow get out of that frame of mind. And what's your favorite food to cook? What is your signature dish? Well, I would say I don't have really a signature dish. So I, I go through phases, mostly inspired by, by really good cookbooks, I would say. So um, I've, last year it was uh, Indian fusion cooking. So I was one of my last trips I did before lockdown in the first uh, pandemic wave was, was to Washington, D.C. And I ate at, a, at an Indian fusion restaurant there, Brazika which is an amazing place and they the cook has published a cookbook so i bought it and uh, and it's a really good cookbook in terms of the recipes but also in terms of how they are described because they're really well described so you can actually do it almost to the restaurant quality if you if you follow the instructions so i did a lot of indian fusion last last year and now this christmas uh, i got a modern mexican californian fusion cookbook and so I'm, I'm into that a little bit. Yeah, but so I sort of go through different uh, national cuisines, but then also just a lot of mixtures between Asian and, and uh, Western cuisine, which I think there's a lot of uh, really nice flavor mixtures you can do. So I, I, I don't believe you follow it to the recipe every time. You must surely tweak it as you go along. No, no, so I have a collection of things because often you're at home and you don't have the ingredients and, and then you just make something up. Yeah, and, and then if that works, sometimes that works spectacularly well. Sometimes it, you know, it's all right, but yeah. you don't want to do it again. Uh, but the ones that work well, I try to write them down. So I have a little collection of, of things that, that you know, we, we made up out of the ingredients that were around and that just turned out to work well. And then um, those I keep, you know, as, as a little collection to come back to. Is there any food you do not like? Um, not really. I like to eat essentially everything, I would say. There's, there's just one allergy I have. So I, there's one food I cannot eat, which is these very tiny mussels, vongole, these Italian heart-shaped mussels. And uh, for some reason, I can eat any other kind of mussel, but I cannot eat that one. There must be a weird protein in it that, that I react to very violently, but that's luckily the only food intolerance I have. So otherwise, no, I, I take it with the French, anything that moves, you can eat. And so the, the um, no, I'm, I'm very, you know, vegetables, uh, I have no problem with fish or meat and uh, especially, you know, fresh ingredients and, and good flavors and spices. And then you can always do something really, really nice. And I think, Preparing your food and also using healthy, fresh ingredients and enjoying eating it, to me, is a big part of quality of, of private life. I think that's that's really a very relaxing thing. And it happens to be healthy as well. Okay, so keeping on the food theme, some quick fire questions. What are you going to drink with your food? Wine or beer? Wine. Red or white? Both, depending on the food. Favourite? Between red or white or beer? Yeah, between, what's your favorite? What's your favorite wine? Full stop. Do you have a favorite? So yeah, at, at the moment, a lot of wines from the region here. So uh, relatively close to Heidelberg, an hour away is the is the Palatinate wine growing region, and they have amazing white wines. So there, I would say, you know, some fantastic Rieslings are from this. This is the traditional grape in this area, 
but then they they also have more modern grapes at the moment that they are trying so things like Chenin Blanc or Viognier or Sauvignon Blanc and they, they have some really really good white wines so we have lots of those at home at the moment and especially for the summer that's uh, that's a favorite yeah and afterwards red, to your coffee red, away from Germany so for <laughs> red it's more French Italian Spanish because there's still not enough sun even with global warming in Germany to easily yeah. do wine. yeah tea or coffee coffee for sure essential, essential in the morning i mean without an espresso in the morning i'm almost not functioning that answers the next question espresso or cappuccino but you've answered with espresso i guess at that point are you an early bird or night owl um well i would say my most productive time is morning for sure um not really early so so i would say between between eight and one is sort of my core productive time. So anything that is difficult and that requires creativity, I try to do in the morning. So where, where, I, where I need to develop something or, or you know, write a paper, write a grant, you know, understand data that's difficult, where you, where you need your brain really to engage and where you get into these tunnels, you know, where you just think about one problem for, for a reasonable amount of time. I have to do that in the morning. I'm not good at that in the afternoon. Afternoons are great for discussion, for short things, you know, small tasks, that's not a problem, but, but difficult things, morning. And you've had dinner, you've had a drink. Are you going to read a book or watch TV or watch a movie? Um, all of these, it, it depends a bit again on the state of exhaustion, I would say. <laughs> so the, 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 I mean, many nights when, when you are just exhausted, um, I just watch the news and that's it and, and go to bed. Um, but then when, when you're really tired and, and almost too tired to sleep, then a good movie uh, or a good book both do the job. Yeah, and so, so it depends on. And what type, what genre of film or book? Well, so in, in books, it's really novels mostly. So not mystery or, or sci-fi, but rather novels. So uh, yeah, different writers all over the world. Um, just just well written. I, I like interesting stories and also people that that play with language and that uh, have a have an interesting style of of writing. So diverse, I would say, in in terms of authors, um, movies, yeah, lots of things. I mean, so movies mostly at home is for entertainment. So so they are, I think, either not not too difficult stories. But if I go to the theater to to watch a movie in the theater, then then it's mostly. Yeah, either you know art house films or, or things that have a societal or political dimension sometimes yeah so things like that okay so moving back into work a bit you mentioned the advanced imaging center that is just opened up uh, yes. at EMBL can you tell me more about that yeah so that's been the last uh, four years I guess of, of work so when neurobiomaging kind of became under control and and it was a matter of time until the legal document was published and the infrastructure could start then we, we started something new here at Ember because we realized the core facilities we have are not really set up to serve a huge number of external visitors we our core facilities at Ember they are amazing Rainer Peppercock in the 90s funded, founded one of the first big light microscopy facilities in Europe and I think it's still one of the best ones but the main user base is Ember Internals. It's catering to EMBA scientists. They have many visitors, but 70% of what they do 
is is to uh, serve the scientists at Embel. And so if now with your biomaging and Embel being still involved in coordinating that, lots more people can travel and, and, and use facilities. We actually would have had a problem at Embel to have enough capacity. And I think the, the other thing is that there is no really technologies that you need to support that are not necessarily yet commercial. You know, many of the new developments has been so much more new technology development in the last 10 years than in the decade before that lots of the exciting new stuff isn't commercially available yet or at least the workflows that you need to get your specimen through them is not and and so we said also the service has to go into a different mode where we have a lot more support and a lot more scientists involved in helping the users so that the research grade methods can hit the facilities and so that's really why, why we created the imaging center is to first of all have a much stronger capacity for our external scientists from Ambit's member states but also be able to have the staff support that that the latest also academically developed methods can be provided even if they are not yet commercially available yeah and so that's that's what the imaging center as you said it's just started to do we're in in the pilot user phase uh, now where the initial projects are coming in from the outside um, in October, there will be a completely open call for projects. So then we are just like a synchrotron. Anyone can come and, and do the research here. But at the moment, we are trying to pick projects that are pretty much ready to go for data collection so that we test the service pipelines with projects that are relatively mature and also with people that already have some familiarity with the type of microscopy they are using so that, that there's not such a big steep uh, preparation curve for the projects to succeed here, yeah, but that's that's happening. And so we, we built this building for over the last two years during the pandemic, still it's there and it, it's there on time and, and actually in budget. So this was uh, part of my job the last two years is to hit the construction board and, and sit with architects and scientists and construction and engineering firms and then get this together. But it's no, it's great. I mean, it's really, it's a building made for visitors. It's, has spacious microscopy rooms to the latest specs. It, it's not just like microscopy, it's also electron microscopy. So it really goes all the way down to single particle cryo-EM structure determination and all the way up to organismal multi-photon and also label-free methods of imaging. And, and the main emphasis is to integrate these methods together so that people can combine structure and function in one project. And so for all of these, it has the latest research grade and it's got the infrastructure to keep those instruments working and also the staff that really is there dedicated to help people. Yeah. I think I, that, that was the next question actually, because obviously it's not just the equipment. Uh, the, the equipment is great, but the, the, the way the technologies move forward, the expertise needed to support the equipment, not, not to make them run, but to actually apply a user's sample on the microscope. That technical expertise is now essential for many of these applications even though they're easy to use in many cases, actually using it properly is a different problem. And I think I, I'll say EMBL was one of the first places I saw that technical expertise as a potential career for postdocs to go on and not take the classic academic research route, but to become expert in the technology. Uh, and actually one of my inspirations was Timo Zimmerman yeah. at that point. And I believe Timo, being a career technologist, an expert, now leads part of the Advanced Imaging Center. That's right. Yeah. So Timo is back after many years in, in Spain. 
um, is, is back at Ember now to head the light microscopy service team. So we have two service teams in the in the imaging center, one for electron microscopy, one for light microscopy, and Timo is heading the light microscopy one, absolutely, yeah. No, that's, I mean, what you said is true. And I think it's, Ember did this early because it has this service mission. And also here, the service staff from the very beginning was treated like the research staff. So there was not a two-class system, you know, that you say, ah, you know, you're working in service, you're not real. Um, but but from the very beginning, it, it was as valuable to be a scientist in service and to be a scientist on a beamline that, that provides the latest technologies to people as being a scientist who does research because it's, it's as essential. Yeah, and so here that's really a fully accepted career. Service faculty is on the same level as research faculty. They have the same voice in shaping the agenda and, and, and doing strategy. And uh, so there's no, no distinction between these two career options. And it, it really depends on what people are good at and also what they, what they want to do. Uh, their career. So absolutely, that's still like that. And, and I think the imaging center, because the methods are so demanding there, it simply has a higher ratio of service staff to instruments than most facilities that operate only commercial equipment. Yeah, and so that, that is why we hope we can support also very advanced workflows. And you're absolutely right, often the expertise is the limiting, either in, in the specimen preparation or the workflow or also in the data analysis. And that the actual data collection bit, once you've got your specimen right, is, is not really limiting. The instruments are expensive, but um, they, they can be used if everything upstream has been done well. I, I think your staff ratio will also need to be higher compared to a normal university core facility because of the external. You know, with internal users, you can train a lot of them. They're long-term investments. They're there for years, so you can train and they will become independent users. Uh, the next career technologist uh, you know, can come from that route. But I guess in the Advanced Imaging Center, most of them will be fleeting moments. Over the lifetime, people come in, very transient come in. So they'll always be needing a lot of hand-holding, support, training, going through that. So it's, it'll be challenging as an environment for the staff in there, whilst exciting, because I guess they'll see a whole variety of different sample types. So... Yeah, for, for me, as I said, Timo was a great inspiration. Seeing that that route as a career path was, was brilliant. It was an eye-opener. It was thanks to EMBL and the EMBO course back in 2001 that enabled that. Who's been your inspiration in your career? Well, I would say I mentioned probably the two most important early mentors already. So that, that was uh, Jennifer as my PhD advisor, but then also uh, Mark Terazaki, who taught me a lot of things about, about live imaging. He was a colleague at NIH and then in Woods Hole as well, where I spent many summers working with him. Um, so I would say early on, they were really the, the key people to, to uh, yeah, inspire me and, and really uh, in very different ways, two role models, I think, for research. You know, how do you become really with your whole personality a, a, a successful scholar and, and, and researcher. And, and they do it in two very different ways, but I think in, in two completely admirable ways that, that one can aspire to. And I'm not at all like them, but I think they were extremely inspiring and, and, uh, and, and still are really, both of them are still active. I would say here at Ember that, that uh, there were many, many fantastic colleagues and, and especially when I started as a young groupie that was very intimidating being surrounded by so many established people and you 
come and start your own group for the first time and you think, you know, I will never be as good at the, as these people and I'm probably not the real thing. I think this, you know, now you call it imposter syndrome. I think at the time it was just intimidating and then you were scared. Yeah. But I think probably the person I learned most from was, was uh, Ian Matai, who was at the, at the time the head of the unit I was recruited into, which was called the Gene Expression Unit. And then later on became director general of EMBL uh, and, and is now is heading the, the human technopole in, in, in Milan. And I think Ian, again, in a very different way, but he was first, you know, a, a, an amazing scientist uh, and, and many things he did with extreme rigor and, and uh, mechanistic depth, which, which was a new dimension to, to my research, I would say, that, that I learned a huge amount from. But then when he became member director general, he had also, he had never done politics and he learned how to do it and, and very quickly. And so I think also there from the challenges that I was facing in neurobiomaging, he, he really supported that a lot and I, I learned many things from him. So I would say that's probably been the third person I would say I've really learned most from, from my career, yeah. I think just to, I have, I, I, time is ticking over too fast. I have to ask how did you, how, Within, you talked about the politics within neurobiomaging uh, with politicians, but what about the politics between the medical researchers, so your MRI, your PET scanners, that community, and the microscopists? Because we are very different ways of working. Uh, so how? Because obviously, to start neurobiomaging is, is about both. It's about imaging. It's not just microscopy. How did you cope? Because it was pretty rough in the early days, if I recall, between these two communities. Yeah. Are they really so different? Well, I mean, not really, but but they, as you say, they have different ways of operating, and especially also the systems have very different way of funding the infrastructure. And so that actually was part of the some of the political problems that the organizations that support more medically oriented research and how it is funded are very different from the ones that support the basic research and, and the infrastructure for that. And they, they operate in different ways. And, and so the, a project that tried to do both um, out of necessity early on, initially these were two projects when, when the European infrastructure roadmaps were created, it, it, there were two independent projects, one for biological imaging, one for medical imaging, but then politically in Brussels, uh, there was a need to merge them because there were too many and there could only be one for imaging, and uh, we talked about that between the coordinators, and we said, okay, you know, we both want to do it. We can uh, do it in competition with each other, or we can do it together. And then we decided the chances are bigger if we do it together. And I think that was absolutely the right decision at the time, but it did create many downstream challenges. Yeah, and and so some of the political challenges we discussed came from that because different sets of funding organizations that operated with different rules had to be integrated with each other. I think once it comes down to the technology and the scientists, it's actually not difficult. These people like to work with each other and the people who develop instruments, whether it's for animal imaging or for patient imaging or for imaging model organisms or cells or even protein complexes, they, they all really love the technology. They all really love what can be done with it, what can be seen, what can be visualized and what you can learn and they love to work with each other there's absolutely no problem yeah but it's more the level above where people are invested in certain ways of funding research or in certain ways of creating infrastructure and they can 
lose by that changing and by that becoming more open and more democratic that when you run into problems. And I think that's been you know, a bit more of a tradition on the basic science side that things tend to be democratic, they tend to be open access, they tend to be shared. And it was much less the case on the medical research side because the, the structures were different. Yeah, and, and so there, there was much more apprehension there that, that you know, they would have to change completely how they operate and they didn't want to do that and all of that. And so that there was a lot of necessity again to build trust. And I think the, the uh, uh, what has resulted from now, uh, I think, to have really both communities together at many sites operating joint infrastructure is amazing. That's fantastic. And that's exactly the, the vision that we started with. But to build the trust between people that they actually don't take anything away from each other, but that they rather benefit from operating together and from really bringing samples one way or another. Uh, uh, is is uh, takes time. It takes time for people to get to know each other, for learning to trust each other, and and to see. Actually, it's fun. These are great people, um, as well. And so, I think between the scientists, there is not a problem. It's, I, I, it's more I have realised we are actually up to the hour mark, and I, but I've got to ask you before we stop. What do you see as the next big challenge, whether it be technology or biologically? What's the next big thing that has to be developed? or solved? I think we've got many in life science, I would say. It's, it's still a very young discipline with, with a lot of uh, uncharted territory and a lot of things we, we don't understand. I, I would say there's many challenges for technology. I love microscopy, and I think there's many things we still cannot see that we need to see. And, and I think one big area I would like to see happening is that we can understand network dynamics in real time. So I think this is a core of our gap in our knowledge is that we have trouble understanding biological systems because we cannot easily understand how nonlinear large networks work. It's, it's, it's not easy to understand that from a theoretical point of view, but then also from getting the data that you would need in order to characterize that. And so there, I think our ability to sample that is extremely poor. You know, the, the many tens of thousands molecular species you have in a living system that most of them interact with each other in, in nonlinear regulatory loops. We are only scratching the very surface of that information at the moment. And, and uh, I think having technologies to look at that, but also having the theory to actually understand that is, is not there. Yeah, so I think that for me personally is an area where I think there's still a lot to do and where we are still only doing, I would call them advanced inventories, yeah, with, with all the omics technologies and the spatial omics and, and all the structure characterization, all of what we are doing, we're getting a lot better framework information, but to actually say we've understood how a living system works and, and we could create it and we've understood the logic, how it operates, I think that is still quite some time in the future because some of the fundamental technology to look at that, but also some of the fundamental theory to grapple with that data and, and to get the underlying logic out of it. I think we, we just don't have it. So I think we need technology, yes, but we also need more theoretical people to work on living systems because they work in different ways than non-living systems. And there's not enough theorists worrying about that. 
yeah, and, and what kind of theory you need. So I think that to me would be the, the dual challenge. Uh, I, I'll cycle back on something earlier. I think one of the biggest challenges with that is the heterogeneity that will be encountered as you go along. And, you know, a cell is a cell, uh, a person is a person, and you have a scientist and a politician, and they're very different. <laughs> it's just uh, teasing out the heterogeneity when you're trying to understand the one mechanism is going to be and is a real challenge. But one that we will get there, I am no doubt. Absolutely. Jan, I have so many other questions I wanted to ask, but we have run out of time. But thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you, everyone, for listening, watching to the microscopist. Uh, you've heard some great comments about Jennifer Lippicott-Schwartz, which is one of the first ones, so go back, listen to that, and some other really interesting ones. So please subscribe to the channels, get into Spotify, iTunes, whichever platform you like, uh, and hopefully you've enjoyed today. Jan, you know what? I've learned so much about you today. Uh, it's been really eye-opening, revealing, and, and a real pleasure, so thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure was on my side. It's really been fun and uh, no it's a great series and thanks so much for having me pleasure thank you for listening to the microscopists a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by zeiss microscopy to view all audio and video recordings from this series please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the microscopists